We're going to talk about money for the next uh, four or five weeks. We're taking the long route to get to, to certain teachings uh, that we're pretty familiar with in the church about stewardship and, and tithing and those sorts of things. But I don't want to just jump to those ideas, assume the answer. Um, I, I want us to... I think it would be healthy in the long run if we build a good foundation on how to think about money and then allow uh, the word to teach as as we go along. So, with that said, let me start with what money is. Um, On one hand, uh, money is just a piece of paper, right? I mean, dollar bills are just paper. If you were on a desert island and you needed a fire, and you had a case of money, you'd burn it for heat. Someone said to me between the services, actually, it's less than that now. It's like zeros and ones on the internet. It's an idea uh, that we don't even ever touch. So that's, that's one idea of money, which uh, I'm putting that out in front and first because every now and then, we're going to talk about the other idea of money, but every now and then we need to stop and go, it's just paper. Like it's, a, it's, it's your fire escape for your soul sometimes. On the other hand, and this is not an economic definition, but uh, it rep- money represents value. It's a reducible idea in our community that allows us to evaluate items and exchange in a common Medium. That's what money is. It's an estimation of value. You ever uh, on drive, like I'll drive to Lancaster and I'll drive by all the farms. And something in me, I might even say this to my wife because I'm such a talker. But I might go, you know, this is how it should be. This is healthy living. I'll get on that rant. This is how, you know, the Amish aren't so, there I go, right? But you know why? Because you see these acres acres and acres of cornfields, and it just seems so right. Like that's, that's just right. And I imagine, I imagine the farmer on his porch looking out at his harvests, doing the rock, you know, very highly satisfied (laughs) with the suspenders kind of, Straw in his mouth, dog at his side, patting his other son, big old farmy hands, you know, and uh, that's just right to me. 30 acres of corn, all nine foot stalks waiting to be harvested. That's just, that's how it should be. Well, you know what that farmer does when he harvests his corn? He sells it for money. He exchanges it for money. Money is a reducible medium. All those ear of corn are reduced to money. But I think one of the reasons many of us can look at that and admire it is because we see the, the season of productivity in it. But the reality is, is that season of productivity is in all sorts of things that you and I do, all sorts of different occupations. If a, if a, a mechanic works hard on a car... And fixes the car. 
The same thing just happened, right? When money goes in his hands, the same thing happened that happened with the farmer. Same thing. The young 12-year-old boy mows his neighbor's yard, right? His first yard, he's done mowing, and he's got sweat on the brow, right? And if he had suspenders, he'd do that. And he puts his little sweaty palm out, and 10 or 15 bucks goes in it. The same thing just happened with that boy that happens all the time on the way to Lancaster. Even in less tangible ways, the same thing is happening. If a lawyer dwells and works hard on his litigation for his case, all that time, that's productivity. That is converted into this reducible exchange we call money. Sometimes the whole town gets together and we combine our wares and our goods and our corn and our apples and our pigs and our cattle. We pull it all to hire to support certain positions we think are important in the community, like policemen, and teachers, but we just do it through money. Money is this reducible exchange that allows all of that to happen easily. But in many places, this pattern of productivity, and I'm, I wanna, I'm trying, I'm hoping, especially if sometimes you're like, what do I do? I work in a cubicle, you know, doing security for a firm well, that is what you do. I give you a good title. You, you protect and defend the productivity of a massive corporation from criminal invaders. It's awesome. And for that, you get money. So on one hand, money is paper, but on another hand, for those who work, and I have different opinions about money that comes without labor, but on the kinds of money that come through the process of labor, it's an affirmation and evidence of productivity. I just don't want us to be so quick to say, well, let's talk about stewardship. It all belongs to the Lord and, and skip past something that's very meaningful to people. But here's something that happens with money that, that get, gets us in trouble. Since money becomes a way of evaluating the value of an object, it's not really that, especially in our fallen world, it's not really that long of a leap to go from using money to evaluate the value of an object to using money to evaluate the value of a person. In other words, a person who has much money is very valuable. A person who has a little money is not very valuable. We all operate like this at some level. Even if we don't think about other people, we think about ourselves. You know, you want to be, you, what are you worth? I was in a, in a coffee shop the other day having a cup of coffee and it was in Kennett and uh, they were talking, these two, I was eavesdropping for the gospel. Right? But there's this guy, this realtor was talking about this. He says there's this 15,000 square foot home he's trying to sell. He's like, it's ridiculous. And they're like, the, the guy's got to be worth like six, seven easy. That's not a hundred, six hundred dollars. Okay? It's the bigger six. Uh, is that what he's worth, really? It's not what he's worth. Like, in some ways, he's worth way more than that. 
And in some ways, he's worth way less than that. But our culture has this classic way of taking money which assigns value to objects and using it to assign value to people who are not objects. And so the poor feel that they are not valuable, which is why the word elevates them. And the wealthy deal with the temptation of feeling like they are valuable uniquely because of their account. And that's why the Lord works there as well. In fact, there's a few. At various times in Scripture, the Lord has to kind of blow the lid off of this entire issue of possessions and remind us all that he owns everything, that he made everything, and at the end of the day, it's all just paper. Or even it's less than that. It's just an idea that exchanges on a computer. Sometimes the Lord has to do that, and he'll do it on occasion to chasten chasten people who are assigning too much value to themselves, and the Lord will do it on occasion to encourage people who feel impoverished because of their lack of wealth. And the Lord comes to them and says, I made everything, and I call you precious. I, the creator of heavens and the earth, think much of you, the apple of my eye. Isaiah 40 is one of these moments. I just want to read a few verses to you. This is the Lord. This is a moment, by the way, of encouragement to uh, the Israelite people who feel impoverished by the empires around them who are coming down on them. And the Lord says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon was known for the cedars of Lebanon, these trees. It's still on the flag, by the way. The flag of Lebanon has a cedar. They were so proud of their trees. He says, there's not enough trees in Lebanon to suffice for the fuel for the Lord. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Sometimes the Lord just has to remind us It's just paper. It is just paper. But it's so real. This is the strange thing about money is it's so real. Let me give you an example. We'll use this example on the way to Genesis. Because I, I do... I think if we genuinely think about it, it is not simple. Something... Deep is happening. So use this example. You know, uh, kids in their lemonade stands, right? It's a phase. It'll pass. Don't worry. But uh, every now and then, the kid wants to do a lemonade stand. So what does little Tommy do? He says, Mom, I wanted to sell lemonade. So the mom gets out the card table. The mom helps him make the sign. The mom goes and buys lemons because he wanted to do real lemonade. We always did the crystal light. We were cheap. We maximize profits is what we do. Right? Lemonades and sugar. And the mom cleans up the kitchen when the kids and the mom helps them carry the stack of cups down. They fall and got to clean the grass out of them because you're not going to recycle cups. It's lemonade after all. You, you know, get all that and set everything up and the... Then the mom sits back in the kitchen and looks through her window at little Tommy on the street. Nobody's coming because it's 10.30 in the morning and it's 55 degrees outside. 
And so the mom calls her neighbors and says, are you sure you're not thirsty? And all the neighbors, we know the drill. You know, it's, they did it for us. We pat their back. So you drive by and you act famished, right? She calls her husband. The husband comes by at 10 in the morning looking for a nice lukewarm cup of crystal light that would just quench his soul. There's all of that happening, right? And the child at the end of that hour and a half, right? Four hours of work for the mom and an hour and a half down the street, the child produces $3.15. It's all that work. It's, it wasn't him. This is us. Like this world is a lemonade stand. I mean, in that case, you're the Lord in that account, right? You orchestrated the entire environment for that to happen. It's as fine dust. But for the child, it's real. And it is real. That's the interesting thing about it. It's not fake for the child. The child really did work. The child was productive. There's, and the parent sees it. This is why as parents, we don't burst their bubble. They don't show us three tins and say, look at what I did. And you go, you didn't do that. It was me. In fact, you owe me 450 we don't do that to them. We don't do that because we know as parents that something valuable did exchange in their life. There was something mysterious that took place. That child was genuinely productive, had imaginative vision, had a place they wanted to go, something they wanted to do. They participated with societies. All these sorts of things that these, these were, every one of those steps was a maturing step in that entire activity. And it was real for that child. So we keep it a secret, don't we? We keep it a secret that what he did was a myth. It wasn't a myth, it was real. We keep it a secret that his tiny realness only took place because of our massive orchestration. That's the Lord. And on occasion, the Lord, when, if the child is a little bit devious, the child says, tomorrow I'm going to wake up at five and do the same thing, and I'm going to be a millionaire, or just do nothing but lemonade. Then you kind of go, you know, actually, we bought the lemons. Not going to do that. Actually, no. You know, sometimes you have to start to peel back and show the child the orchestration. But the Lord does. But the truth of the matter is, it's real for him, but it's tiny. It's like a laboratory for his personhood that the parent enables so that they can grow. This is what it is for us. Look in Genesis chapter one. Go way back. I want to show you how this idea of productivity and of producing and of things and of materials is in us since the very beginning. It's in us right since creation. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Lord has it in his mind to make man, and this is what he says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, on the earth. So God created man in his image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, that's a really, really big passage. I mean, there's a lot that could be said about it. And we don't have a lot of time. In fact, we're going to push pretty quickly through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What I want to show you is the, there's two big ideas that live right next to one another. One is the image of God and one is the dominion of man. We're made in the image of God. And if we were to ask, if you're in a small group or Sunday school or Bible study and you would say, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We'd say all sorts of things like free will, intellect, reason, relationship, the ability to love, our emotional prowess, all of those things we might connect. And I'm sure there's some rightness to all of them. What I find interesting is what Jesus puts immediately adjacent to that sentence. We're the Lord here. Let us make him in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion. I never hear that when we talk about what does it mean to be made in the image of God. The same rhythmic repetition that the Lord uses in Genesis to kind of footstomp any important idea. Let, let us make him in his image. And then you have this triplet. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That, that, that repetition shows up, by the way, in the same way with dominion. So God says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. And so he creates them in 27. And then he says to them, have dominion. We've been given, I mean, what do we say? It's a tiny, I mean, I know we're going to get to the second chapter, I'm going to realize there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God still, our dominion is beneath his massive expanse of dominion. But, doesn't make it not real. I mean, there's productivity in this, these passages. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. I mean, how many different ways can you say it? I mean, that's radical repetition right there. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. There's productivity in that. There's work in that. Can, dare we say there's a spirit of ownership in that? I think if Adam had remained an unfallen, you know why we climb mountains? People say it's because it's there. I'd say no, because the dominion of this planet is in us. And a human should have the right to look at a mountain as theirs. It's in us. Spirit of ownership and productivity is in us. In the second chapter, in verses 8 and 9, the Lord makes the garden for Adam. And then in 15, the Lord puts Man, the man in the garden to work it. Now, he doesn't say put in the garden to work it. You don't get these, the, the sense or the sentiment that the Lord is saying, now, you better work this garden. When I come back, you'd better... <laughs> you don't get that. You, what you get, in fact, is that the Lord is creating for the man a place, a lemonade stand is what he's doing. The Lord is creating an environment where the man can get to work the way God created him to work. It's in us. And alongside of that, I, I want, 
why am I saying it like this? I want us to appreciate how central possession and material, the material reality is to our being. He didn't make us spirit. He made us materially. I mean, flesh and spirit. There's kind of a side of the church that when it observes the material gone south, it wants to retract from materialism. Well, we can't escape it. We're material. The problem is not that we're material. The problem is we're too unspiritual. What we need is to be born of the spirit. Not to abandon the flesh. In fact, when we will be resurrected, we will be resurrected in the flesh and the spirit. It's the unity of the two that is the work of the Christian life. But God's given us. God gave in the non-fallen condition on the sixth day, God gave the man and the woman this massive expanse, this blessed gift for them to work and experience productivity in. And then in the second chapter, we see a provision. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's as though the Lord, right, it's, the Lord gives the man dominion because it, how can we be like the Lord and not Lord over something? I think that's the reason. But in that, the Lord gives one thing to make the, men, the man ever mindful of the fact that this may be our dominion and we may be over it, but God is over us. God is ever over us. And this, how we experience all that is beneath us is understood in context to how we experience it beneath him who's over us. That's the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not some evil tree or some poisonous food. It is a provision of obedience that requires the man to be ever mindful that he is a created creature as well. But I find it fascinating that the, the command centers around an object and the question of possession. And you find it. When the enemy attacks in the third chapter, right, when the serpent tempts, the serpent tempts about the issue of possession. What did God really say? Oh, he doesn't want you to eat of this tree because if you ate, you'd be just like him. You see, this is the tactic of the serpent. The tactic of the serpent is to make something that is beneath us, make a created object, make something beneath us appear as though it has some kind of meaning for us, some kind of eternal significance to us. Eve, if you eat that, you'll be different. And we have this, this sin is the most repeated sin in human existence. The idea of us looking to created things and hoping and attaching significance in them about who we are. We, we do that, I think we all do that every day. 
if I had that, I'd be that. If I just had that, and some of us do it in a sense of gain, like self-improvement. Once you like cross the hinge and you realize you're not getting any better, then you do it for security. If I had that, I'd be safe. If I had that, I'd be this. The Lord's intent is to say, I've given you everything and you are valuable and safe beneath me. That your value, which is unbelievably valuable, and your security in the garden, which is eternal, those realities don't exist because of the things beneath your feet. Those realities exist because you are obediently beneath me. And the temptation is to salvage those ideas somewhere else. And so we do. Let me take you real quick to Matthew. Matthew 13, if you could go there. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the tithe and how this perspective on God's ownership, how affects our tithe. And the following Sunday, we're going to talk about satisfaction and debt and how our perspective of the Lord affects that. And then we're going to talk about generosity, and then we're going to talk about retirement. And in all of these, they ultimately find themselves in, where are we garnering significance? Are we garnering significance from the earthly things, which are really given to us for enjoyment and to be the fruit of our labor, but not the fruit of our identity? Or are we gaining significance from the Lord? Look at uh, the 13th chapter, verse 44. This is what it says. This is a parable from Christ. And he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. The Lord's trying to help us estimate the value of the kingdom. But in this parable, the kingdom of heaven, we might understand as eternal life. We might understand in our setting, living outside the Garden of Eden, as the Garden of Eden. Paradise and eternal union with the Lord. Okay? And so he says that reality of, of eternal union with the Lord in paradise, he says it's, it's such a treasure that if a man had his spiritual head screwed on straight and he came across the golden ticket into that environment, he would, what does it say? He would think long and hard and compare it to his current setting. Is that what it says? He would put it all on the balance and... No, in joy, it says. In joy, he runs off and sells it. Joy. The Lord's saying, if you really understood all that I had for you, if you really understood all that I think of you, if you really understood all that you don't have now in this human existence that we call life, if you could only understand it, all the stuff that tempts us would turn into paper. You'd get the kingdom in a bargain 
to sell everything out, you get the kingdom in a bargain. Go a few more pages. Go to the 19th chapter. This is an occasion. The title is The Rich Young Man. I'm going to just pick up in 16 and read the story. It says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, this is to Jesus, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. See, the rich man's saying, How do I get into the kingdom of heaven? That's what he wants to know. What's the price to the kingdom of heaven? Keep the commandments, says Jesus. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, either the young man does not appreciate the kingdom of heaven. It's probably both of these, right? It's probably a both and, not an either or. The young man does not appreciate the gain of the kingdom of heaven. One. Number two, it's quite likely that the young man in his wealth has been able to make this life quite pleasant. That's the danger of wealth. In fact, it follows. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is not against this person. In fact, in Luke, it says Jesus looked on him and loved him. So he's not creating a more difficult obstacle course for the wealthy. What he's saying is, and by the way, in this, we always think this is about someone more wealthy than us, don't we? Yeah, I know you do. You think it's like a really rich person, right? The, the, the point here, and this is an account, but the lesson out of this is, do you really have any idea how glorious the kingdom of heaven is? And how glorious union with God is, one. And does your wealth cloud your judgment? Like we're living outside the garden right now. We're living outside the garden. And the the parable of the first man is, I would sell everything I had to get back in. And the parable of the second man is, ah. I got a pretty good deal. The things I have, what they say about me is pretty attractive. It's hard to give something away when it tells you something about yourself. It's hard. I used to drive to, I went to Sanford for high school, which is a really good school. Great Experience. I, went, I drove to school with my mom, strike one, in a used Ford Escort, strike two. It had a dent in the door, it had a crack in the windshield, and the radio didn't work. You're out. Man, 
It was one of the best things for me. One of the best things for me. I, I didn't like it, but... Oh, sometimes it's good to go, where is my value? Because the Lord wants you to know you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord wants you to know how much... The thing is, is in our wealth... We don't realize that in some ways we're far more wealthy than we think in God. And in other ways we're far more impoverished than we can imagine in our wealth. So my question for you is, and and this is, I know it is true about us in some measure, but this is the drive away. As you leave and as as you think about this and as we begin to set the stage for stewardship of the reality of in this tiny way our possessions are very real, but in some big way, God is over it, saying, I'm really curious to know how you view me in light of what you have. This week is your, I just want you to catalog, be thoughtful as to what kind of reverb you get off of the material objects around you. I mean, I'll give you an easy confessional one to me. I love fast cars. I love chrome, and I love noise. And I know if I were on a Harley fat boy, I'd be better looking. I'd be tougher. I would wear leather, and I would punch somebody. I mean, that's just what it would do for me. Um, I, am a, I am weak there. And so right now, I sit at a distance, and I thank the Lord for people who buy them so I can watch them drive, like watch their car, because I'm just glad to see the car. I'm grateful that someone made a Maserati. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. But what does it say about me? That is such a barbed wire ridden minefield in my life. What is it for you? Do you love checking how how much you're worth online? Yes, no. (laughs) What do you need? Just catalog it. You don't, I don't even, I'm not even asking you to reply to the Lord. I just want you to go, there it is. I saw it. And just build a database. Our ability to see is sometimes we just need to know that our mom really is the reason it all worked. Right? Let's pray. Lord, set us, set us upright at the starting line as we step into the finances and possessions and Help us not to hear unwanted accusations that really aren't in your word about uh, as though material is bad or that work is not rewarded, all these things, Lord. Help us just to be quiet and hear the rightness of what you want us to be. Lord, I do pray that we would grow to be a generous people before you. But most of all, I pray that we would grow to feel your value and to not to be dependent upon the other ways in this world we're evaluated, Lord. We lift ourselves up to you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.